Butterfly, you can have a seat. I'm really, I'm really grateful for moments like that, and I'm really grateful for the leadership of our team so far tonight. It has been so encouraging to me. Uh, the song, Revelation Song, we haven't done that one in a minute, and it is so good. Uh, amen? amen? It's so good. Uh, I love that last song, too, or the tag of the last song, uh, the declaration. We sing, holy is your name. I just love our, like, us taking our perspective and our posture and constantly lifting it upward to see who God is and the goodness of God. And I'm just really, really glad that you were here and that you sang that uh, tonight. A couple of things as we just kind of take a turn between uh, worship and kind of where we're going tonight. I will warn you, uh, we're gonna cover a lot of ground tonight, just like a flight attendant would tell you to like buckle your seatbelt, I would get your pen ready, because uh, we're gonna read two pretty long stories out of the book of Luke and about out of the book of Mark tonight. But a uh, quick special shout out I need your help with. A good friend of mine, uh, his name's Luke. Uh, he's been around my life for a couple years now, and he's in Raleigh right now getting some medical testing done. And he's watching online right now on YouTube. Can we just make a really, really big noise so he can hear? Hey, Luke! He told me I wouldn't do it. Uh, he said that he was gonna host the YouTube chat tonight as if that's a thing. Anybody else is watching on YouTube, man, we're so glad that you're with us tonight. Uh, I hope that tonight really encouraged you so far and that you like felt a little bit of the energy coming from this room and just a little bit of the passion and the love of Jesus uh, that is alive in this room. I'm really excited about what we're talking about tonight. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie to you. It wasn't the original plan when we mapped out the kind of the map of this series. Uh, this week, uh, the content was gonna be a little bit different. We're actually gonna talk about what I was originally planning to talk about this week. We're gonna talk about it next week, uh, which I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit. Uh, but I really felt like there was something very specific that we needed to dive into tonight. Uh, and it's this idea of the life that Jesus came to demonstrate for us and invite us to live. And as we've been navigating our way through this series, it really was incredible last week. Jake and Jenna uh, did an incredible job. Oh, they're down front. Hey, Jake and Jenna. <laughs> as she covers her face with her notebook. Jake, way to stand strong. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the, the name, the Hebrew name of Jesus uh, being Yehoshua, uh, being Yeshua for short. Uh, we taglined it, the one who changed everything. We believe that when we begin to study the life of Jesus, we actually really do begin to see that Jesus actually did change everything. When it comes to faith, when it comes to believing in who God is, when it comes to seeing the Bible through a correct lens, Jesus changed everything. He didn't change some things, he changed quite literally everything. He didn't come to continue an old thing, he came to start something new. And we're gonna be talking a lot about the new covenant next week, and I've heard through a couple of different conversations with people uh, that there might be a little bit of confusion as to what is the old covenant and what is the new covenant. Don't miss next week. We're going to take a deep dive into what do we mean by the old covenant and the new covenant. I'm really, really excited about it. But uh, here's what I believe. When we see the life of Jesus, we see two really, really big things that he gave his life to do. We can say it this way. Uh, Jesus gave his life to establish a new covenant, to institute a new promise on behalf of God, and to demonstrate a new way to live. 
And the way that I would like sum up the way to live that he demonstrated and therefore invited us into uh, really leads me to the title of the message tonight. uh, And it's your best life. Like when you begin to live the life that Jesus demonstrated, I believe, our team believes, our church believes that you will find your best version of life. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says very clearly that he came in to give life and life to the full. Right before that, he talks about how the enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he really paints this really interesting picture as to how different he and what he has to offer really is. And I really believe that when we begin to understand and see the reality of the life that Jesus lived and the one that he invites us to live, we do find our best life. And this isn't just me saying this as a a pastor or as a director uh, at a church. This is somebody. I'm speaking to you as someone who has gone through so many cycles of transformation, of seeing the fruit of the the way that Jesus invites us to live. So I I wanna start tonight by kind of asking you a very simple question, uh, but I believe that it has incredible value, and that's what's on your mind? I think that we would all have a lot of different answers to this. I think if you surveyed everybody in the room, uh, everybody would have a fundamental different answer to this. Some of us are thinking about the person that we're sitting next to. Some of us are thinking about finals. Some of us are thinking about what we're doing this summer as everybody looks at the person sitting, you're sitting next to and you're like, yeah, I'm thinking about you. Uh, that's weird. Uh, stop thinking about them, you're in church. Uh, but there, there's, there's lots of different things that are on our mind. And here's the, the reason that I got to thinking about this. Is several months ago, I don't even know if Maddie would remember the story. Uh, we left our house, we were going to dinner. I'm pretty sure we were going to eat at Chick-fil-A and, because that's typically what pastors use in stories when they're preaching, they talk about Chick-fil-A. Uh, I don't know where we're going to dinner, but I'm pretty sure we're going to Chick-fil-A. Uh, and we left our house. We don't live too far from here. And we were talking about church. We were talking about work. We are having a really, really great conversation. And all of a sudden, we pull in the church parking lot. I'm driving. And we pull in the church parking lot. And we've been having a really, really great conversation along the way. And Maddie's like, hey, why are, why are we here at the church? And I was like, I have no idea. We were talking about work. We were talking about church. We ended up in the parking lot of the church because the church was what was on my mind. It was work that was the thing that was on my mind. So somehow or another, subconsciously, I just kicked it into autopilot and ended up at the church, which I think points us to this bigger idea of whatever is on your mind is playing in a big, big part and the trajectory of your life. The thing that you're most consumed by has a big role that it's playing in where you will inevitably end up, especially when it comes to your faith. The things that you dwell on, the things that you focus in on, the things that you hold to be the most important are going to inform the way that you live out your faith and the way that you see your faith and ultimately the way that you see God. Andy Stanley says it like this, direction, not intention, determines destination. I think this is so brilliant because a lot of us have incredible intentions, but we haven't changed our direction. Or 
our direction has come from somewhere or somebody that isn't that helpful. And I think that that's why this conversation about the life that Jesus actually called us to live is so critically important. And I think that we would all agree that there are a lot of different forces in the world fighting for our attention. You can't talk about something and it not show up in your Instagram feed where you can buy it. The world is constantly saying, hey, do this, go here, buy this, see this, believe in this, on and on and on. And C.S. Lewis is a brilliant author or was a brilliant author, brilliant theologian. He said this, that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And I think that this is such a helpful thing for us to remember especially when it comes to your value. What do you believe to be most true about yourself? To put it a little bit differently, what's on your mind day and night? What's on your mind first thing in the morning? What's on your mind when you go to sleep? Or what's on your mind when you wake up at 11 o'clock after going to bed at nine and you're just sitting in your bed and you can't get away from it? What's on your mind when you're in that conversation with that person that means the world to you? What is the thing that you think that they're thinking about you? Your value, the way that you see yourself is so, so important, especially in the context of your faith. And I would say, that when our value is in question, finding our like, direction can be incredibly hard. And I think that we would all resonate with this because when we're having these thoughts, when we're struggling with who we are, when we're struggling with where does our value come from, I struggle with this on an on a everyday, if not every other day basis. I'm constantly having to fight to remember where my value comes from. And the way that we said it at the end of the, of the first week of this series is the, the only foundation that is strong enough to support the weight of your faith and the weight of your life is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the thing that I would really love for you to consider is that if your faith doesn't increase your value, if it doesn't give you hope, then you have not been introduced to the original version of faith. This is how serious this really is. The original version of faith that Jesus came to demonstrate and to give underlines the fact that you have intrinsic value to God. I believe it's been true since the very beginning when Jesus looked at or God looked at humanity and says, this is very good. They're going to carry my image. But if we fast forward to the life of just the arrival of Jesus, just what we celebrate at Christmas, the mere arrival of Jesus into the manger scene proves and shows and points us to we have intrinsic natural born value to God. So when we begin to look at faith, when we begin to be consumed by this idea of I do fill in the blank, therefore I get fill in the blank. When it comes to our faith, it's really, really challenging because we become about an equation. 
I do good things, therefore I get to go to heaven. I do or say the right thing, therefore I get to be in right standing with God. I, I believe the right things, I say the right things. All of these things continue to cycle all over and over and over and over in our mind. And this is something fundamental that's gonna be about the conversation that we're gonna have next week. Something that Jesus did and the, the timing of the events of Jesus's life are absolutely fascinating when you begin to evaluate them if you zoom out just a little bit. But what I'm convinced of is that Jesus totally did away with this statement. Instead, he said, hey, my child, I want you to receive something. And from that thing that you receive, I want you to become something. I don't want it just to be about actions. I don't want it to be just about words. I want it to be more pervasive than that. I want it to be deeper than that. I want it to be holistically transformational for you. I believe Jesus wants to radically change the direction of your life. And that doesn't happen by trying to figure out what the magic thing is to put in this blank. That happens by receiving your value and your identity from Jesus and becoming the person that Jesus has made you to be. So that's where we're going. And that's where I think both of the stories that we're about to read together point us directly to Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn there with me. And I, we were uh, talking about this a little bit earlier uh, with some friends of mine, just about if, if you were here on Sunday, our pastor uh, led through uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And I love the, the way that Luke records. We started here a couple of weeks ago in the very first part of the series. And I just am consistently encouraged uh, by what we see in the stories and the way that, that Luke writes and, and creates this account. If you weren't here week one, uh, just a couple of things about the account of Luke that I think that you should consider, especially if you're a person in the room who is skeptical of faith, skeptical of God, not really sure about what you believe about the Bible. The thing that I would encourage you with is you are far from alone in this room. And when Luke was writing the account that we do have in our Bible, he was writing it to a guy named Theophilus. Uh, and the, the, the tagline kind of giving a summary of the reason that he wrote the book was so that Theophilus could be certain of what was true about Jesus. And at the time when Luke was writing this, he did not know that it would be in the Bible. The Bible wasn't, hadn't been compiled yet. The Old Testament had obviously been written, but the New Testament uh, was still very much in creation. No one had had the idea of even putting a Bible together yet. Luke was just writing an account of the things that he had taken note of. And this story uh, that he records for us in, in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Jesus and his interaction is so telling to the life that we were all made to live. So he says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. I love this uh, because he begins to just give us this picture on one occasion. It's like, this probably happened all the time. And he's just saying, on this one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as 
yourself. And I think that this really begins to give us a picture that this guy has been following around Jesus, or at least he's been hearing about the movement of Jesus because Jesus was really, really intense about this idea of love your neighbor as yourself. You can track this all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, uh, back in the very first part of the Old Testament. It's really, really interesting to see how Jesus begins to connect a lot of dots of things that God has been working to do since the very beginning. But I think that this is so significant because it sets up the next part of the story. Jesus goes on, he says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And if you've been around church or maybe even you have just kind of been paying attention over the the first section of your life, you may have heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And yes, that is the story that we are in. But just to kind of press pause for a second, what this guy is doing, in my opinion, is he's trying to to, to figure out what is the minimum thing that I have to do to have faith and to experience this eternal, good, life-giving life that Jesus is claiming to be able to have the gate keys to. And I think that a lot of us do this because of the the equation that we put up just a minute ago. I do fill in the blank, therefore I get fill in the blank. I do good things, therefore I get good things. I do good things, therefore I end up in heaven one day. And I think that Jesus uses this opportunity to push us even deeper. But this makes me think about what is on our mind when it comes to our faith. This guy is like, I'm trying to get justification for the things that I want to do. I'm trying to get around the rules that you're suggesting of, I've got to love my neighbor. Well, I want a list of people that I absolutely have to love in order to be a recipient of the life that you say that you came to give. And this comes back to this idea of intention and direction. When our intention is to follow, but our priority is comfort, we miss who we are made to be. Every single time in our faith, when we over-prioritize comfort, we stop growing. We know this just in our daily life, in our school schedule, in our physical exercise schedule. I know for me, I'm like, I would much rather go home and go to bed and sleep really well than go for a run. I went for a run last night and it was terrible. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I told you about the story where I went for a run and I made it three laps in that story. I made it one lap last night. It was bad because I hadn't ran since the last time that I told you guys that I had ran, but I needed to clear my head. So I made it one lap around my neighborhood. But we've got to remember this. The intention doesn't determine a destination. We've got to say, we've got to call out when comfort becomes our priority. If you want to have a deep and a strong faith, you're gonna have to set aside comfort and instead pursue holistically and desperately what God is trying to do in your life and through your life. So this is just kind of the halfway point of the story. We can continue on because Jesus replies to him in verse 30. We can put this up here. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
couple things about this that I think is really interesting. The, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was widely talked about, it was widely known. Uh, it was est- it's estimated it was between like 17 and 18 miles of windy, dark terrain. So Jesus is setting up this parable. This is what we, from what we know, this is not a real story. This is something that Jesus is, is saying and sharing uh, to begin to, to expand perspective, to push uh, the people that are around him and listening, to push the expert in the law who asked the original question. Jesus is trying to push in. He's trying to push deeper. And I think that this is so incredible because when you look at all the different parables that Jesus told, you can, you can take a pen and connect all of the dots together and see that every time Jesus tells a parable, there's somebody that represents who God is. There's somebody that represents who the Father in heaven is. And Jesus is about to compare the Father in heaven to somebody that they hate entirely. So he says, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. I think when you begin to dig into the historical implications of the priest uh, and the guy who actually comes next in the story, uh, if, if a priest or a Levite, who is the next person that passes him by and doesn't do anything to help him. If you're a priest or a Levite, you had responsibilities in the temple of the caretaking of the temple. And if you touched a dead body, you would be declared ceremonially unclean. Like if you, you cannot do that, if you are going to be a worker in the temple, it, it gets traced all the way back to the original old covenant law. And I think that Jesus is starting to show us that faith is not as much about ceremony or ceremonial practice as it is about relational living. Like this is just a, a glimmer into something that I think he's, he, he shows these people, these examples, I think very directly and very specifically to begin to show the bigger picture of what was happening. So here comes the next part of the story. He says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, (laughs) brought him to an inn and took care of him. To which I would imagine the disciples and everybody who's listening to Jesus tell this story is like, Jesus, There's no way that you just compared deep or good faith to a Samaritan because of the disdain and the hatred. They would travel far outside of the way to avoid that part of the country. They wanted nothing to do with people who would be described in this way. And I think for you and for me, we've got to begin to look inward at this and ask ourselves, where are we going around somebody or where are we practicing the activity of the Samaritan in the story? He goes on, the next day he took out two denarii. He goes even a step further and gave them to the innkeeper. He pays for his night. He says, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. He goes on, which of these three do you think, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy 
on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus, through a simple story, through a simple analogy, by bringing a Samaritan into the conversation, flips what faith really looks like to the expert in the law. He's saying, no, you cannot have your comfort. You've got to push deeper than that. You've got to wade out into deeper water than that. Your faith matters, and it matters immensely to the person beside you that is your neighbor. It does not matter who they are. They are a person, and God loves people, and he's asking us to leverage our faith to love other people. And I think if we were to sum up this in our own context and in, in our own culture and the way that we live in the world, I think that we would say some things like this. We serve people, we don't cancel them. Cancel culture is not Jesus culture. Everybody good? Cancel culture is not, has never been, and never will be Jesus culture. We do not have the power in our faith to cancel anybody. We love everyone and never succumb to bias. This is why Jesus followers in the room, we have a critical role to play. We have a critical part to participate in in the conversation around racial injustice in our country because we love everyone and never succumb to bias. Jesus was calling the expert in the law higher. It doesn't matter if they're a Samaritan, they're a person with breath in their lungs. You care for them. You don't go around them, you get close to them. You pay for their hotel stay. You go the extra mile because I'm asking you to. We advocate for the good of all people. We value inclusivity, not exclusivity. In the, in the context of the church, this is really, really hard because the deeper our faith becomes and the more dependent on our culture, the more dependent that we are on our friend group, we begin to get really, really exclusive because if more people, if new people, if new struggles get entered into our friend group, it might disrupt the rhythm. No, Jesus is saying through the story that in modern day, I believe the thing that we're called to is to value inclusivity. We don't point fingers and we never gossip. If I were to ask everybody in the room, when was the last time that you talked about somebody behind their back in an unhelpful way? We'd probably like all say it was in the past couple of days because gossip is kind of the thing that happens in our culture so naturally. And I think that we sometimes can justify it. We're like, oh, well, I'm just like, I'm processing or I just needed to kind of get that off my chest. Yes, there is like a, a, a thing where you do need safe relationships and having safe conversations to process things. But we, got to, we have to lift people up at every opportunity. The person that stresses us out or the person that fundamentally degrees with us or the person who attacks us or the person who says what you believe isn't right that person is no less worthy of your love or of God's love than anybody else. And yes, I'm incredibly passionate about this 
because I have not always been of the opinion that I'm sharing with you. The way that I grew up, and if we were to have met five years ago, that fair, Brooks? Five, five, five years ago? Six, okay, four, four? Did you just say four? four the, okay, four or five years ago, I was so judgmental. I don't know that I would have agreed barely with any of these things. But Jesus transformed the way that I saw living out my faith to be something fundamentally more than I could ever imagine. Can we adopt these? Can we be people that say, I'm not canceling anybody. Can we be people that say, I'm not, I'm not standing for bias because all people matter. Can we be people that say, we're gonna advocate for the good of people? Can we value inclusivity? Can we say that we're not going to talk about people, we're gonna talk to people? And when we talk to them, we can be honest with them, we can share the truth with them, but can we lift them up while we're doing that? Can we not go around people like the priest and the Levite in the story? Can we choose to be the Samaritan? Can we say, if we're going to develop a deeper faith, if we're gonna develop a deeper dependence on God, we're gonna love people as radically as Jesus loved them and as radically as Jesus asked us to love them. But here's the problem. When it comes to this, we can get the speed wobbles. I, I'm terrible at skateboarding. I wish that I was good at it. I'm awful. I tried to do like rip sticking one time. Uh, I don't even know if that's the way you say it. Uh, but y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like where you kind of go back and forth. I, I, was in my, uh, I was in my friend's driveway and I was like, that cannot be that hard. So I start going, I hit a rock, I fall off, I scrape my chin up. My, dad, my friend's dad was a dentist and he stitched me up because dentists are good at stitches. Uh, he, he did a phenomenal job. I don't even think you can see it. But here's the deal. When you're skateboarding or when you're on a ripstick and you start going really, really fast, it starts getting really, really wobbly really quick. Everybody that's actually good at this is going like, yeah, dude, you're onto something, but this is like pretty normal. Here's the deal. In our faith, the deeper our faith gets oftentimes or the more consistent we get in church or the more confident that we get in what we believe and the things that we're learning, it can begin to get wobbly and it can begin to get to be all about us or all about what we believe or the convictions that we hold or the things that God is saying to us. And then we all of a sudden act like everybody else is the same exact place as we are. Or somehow or another, we are holier than our friends or we are holier than the other people in our life and we've got it all together. This happens to two of Jesus' disciples, which leads us uh, to the next story, Mark chapter 10, if you wanna flip there with me, and then we'll kind of finish up after this. I love the, the timing of this story, I believe to be so important uh, because uh, if you look in your Bible, I don't know if you have headings in your chapters, but right before this story takes place, Jesus predicts his death for the third time. And I think that that's really important because of what James and John are asking Jesus in the story. So they're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus predicts his death. 
So if, if we're thinking about it in the time frame of where we are in relation to Easter, I think that we could kind of plop right into the timeline right now as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem to die a criminal's death and then eventually to defeat death, which is obviously what we celebrate on Easter. But I think that's important context. So that just happened. And James and John heard that. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> We do this all the time, right? We're like, God, we want you to do, we want you to do whatever we think is right. Like we, we know the plan. We know the next step. We've got it figured out. God, get me, get me here. Get me this job. Get me this house. Help me build this family. And we're going to be good to go. God, you ready? You're coming with me. We do this all the time. If we're being honest with it, with ourselves. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. And I think that this begins a little bit of foreshadowing that Jesus begins to kind of say, and we're gonna skip a few verses for time, but he talks about that and he forecasts some things in their life that aren't going to be easy because they're gonna follow some similar pathways of Jesus. But if we skip down uh, further on in the text, uh, we, we find out what happens when the other 10 disciples hear about what happened. Verse 41, jumping down just a few verses. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And then Jesus puts together a punchline, I feel like, like no other. I think when you look at the New Testament and you think about where you are in your faith, especially if you're somebody like me, that you begin to think that you've got it all figured out or you've got all the answers or you're feeling really, really confident. I love what Jesus says next. We can put this on the screen. He says, not so with you. Do you know how those Gentile rulers do? Do you know how human rulers see authority? where they lord it over people, where they lord their theology over people, where they jam things down people's throats. Do you see that? Not so with you. That is not what you were made for. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so with you. And I think when you begin to look at the stories of Jesus and you continue to investigate and see the way that Jesus lived his life, we would see that the intention and the direction both of Jesus were always the same as the good of his people. Jesus loves people. The way that he interacted with the marginalized and the hurting, he always had the good of people on the forefront of his mind. And if we apply that to this statement, not so with you. If we apply the story of the Good Samaritan in the context of the way that 
God play in, in, this, in, the, in the parable. Jesus was comparing the Samaritan to God the Father coming along and helping and paying for the, the night stay and giving healing to the person. If we took that view of who God is and we, we understand that Jesus is saying, not so with you, I think that we would see that Jesus has our best interest in mind. And if we are to live our best life, it's going to require a lot from us. And I think the first thing that we've got to begin to wrestle with is that life truly is best when given away. Building our own kingdom, building our own castle is not going to be the best version of life. It might seem like it where you are right now. Getting the perfect career and making all the money might seem like that is the thing. But when you study, when you see what Jesus is saying, not so with you, I believe that life is best when given away. A couple of months ago, I was journeying through this and I was sitting, writing in my journal and I wrote something on the top of the page that I want to give to you. And I have it on the slide just like I write it in my journal multiple times a week. And I don't wanna push it on you, but I do wanna ask that you consider it. And that maybe you write it in your journal or maybe you take a picture of it on the screen and you begin to wrestle with it. And it's this, that my life will not be the best that it can be until it's not all about me. I write it over and over and over again. My life will not be the best that it can be until it's not all about me. It's a simple thing to read. It's a simple thing to write down. But it's incredibly hard to apply. Because the minute that we begin to relinquish control, whether it's on our life or whether it's on our faith, there's something inside of us. And I would say that it all goes back to the C.S. Lewis quote from the very beginning that everything is counterclaimed by Satan and that there is a force of evil in the world that wants to leverage you believing that your life is all about you for your demise. Because when we make life all about us, the size of our life shrinks to the space that we are standing in. And you were made for so much more. Even if you're in the room right now and you're like, Carson, I don't believe in Jesus. You were made for more than going day by day throughout your life believing that it's all about you because life is best when given away. The way of Jesus is what you were made for. The way that Jesus walked, the way that Jesus talked, the way that Jesus interacted with people is what you were made for. Your love for God, your pursuit of God is best expressed 
and love for God and love for people. And I really do believe that loving God and loving people are two things that Jesus placed on the same coin. To say, hey, if you're going to follow me, I want you to experience life and life to the full by giving yourself away. Because your faith grows immensely when you give of yourself because you get to see the image of God and all of the people that walk the earth. You get challenged by the people that walk the earth, which causes you to go deeper into your dependence on God. It's a win-win situation, but it's incredibly hard. But just because something's hard doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. So this is how we're saying this, that Jesus gave his life to establish a new covenant and demonstrate a new way to live. The new way that Jesus demonstrated just through those two stories, there's so many more that I would love to continue to talk about and we will. But when you begin to see the way of Jesus, I believe that you find the way that you were made to live. Which is why next week's conversation about the new covenant is so critically important. I'd love to invite you to just stand where you are as we move in to declaring something in our life to be something true that's coming out of our life. That when it comes to faith and when it comes to what we believe and how we live out our faith, it's so easy. It's so easy to be governed by feelings or by what people say or by what people do. It's so easy to be governed by insecurity it's incredibly easy to be governed by anxiety or by depression or by the list of things that you don't have. And here's what I would just love for you to consider. That Jesus came for you to make a promise for you on your behalf and to demonstrate the way that you were made to live. And he's inviting you to take a step towards that. Every single day, he's saying, take another step closer to me. Not so that you can get something, but so that you can become the person that I have made you to be. There's an immense amount at stake because God has a dream for you. And your faith your faith cannot end with you. It can't afford to end with you. It's way bigger than that. It's way more important than that. Because Jesus says so. Because Jesus says, I have a calling on your life. 
It doesn't matter what happened yesterday, what happened today, or what's gonna happen tomorrow. Your calling is secure in the person of Jesus. And that calling starts with declaring that Jesus is Lord and that we desire to use our life to magnify the name and the person of Jesus above all else. Jesus, thank you for establishing a new covenant and demonstrating a new way. Thank you for doing what we could not do ourselves. Thank you for loving us so unconditionally. Thank you for being a God who sees us and a God who cares. Thank you for the thunder and the rain. Thank you for meeting with us here tonight. And God, I just ask that over the next few moments as we sing your name and ask that your name and your life be magnified, that we would mean it maybe at a level that we've never, never meant before. God, I pray that we would step into transformation through the lens of who you are and through the things that you are calling out of us. God, I pray for a bigger, better perspective of faith other than what we do and then what we get, but rather what we receive and who we are called to become. God, thank you for your demonstration and thank you for your love. And we say all of this in the name of Jesus, amen.